Section 54 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Stevens. The World Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico and the West Indies. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 54. Canada of the Future. 20th Century. By Agnes C. Lout. The 20th Century belongs to Canada. The production of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Premier of the Dominion, seems likely to have bigger fulfilment than Canadians themselves realise. What does it mean? Canada stands at the same place in the world's history as England stood in the Golden Age of Queen Elizabeth on the threshold of her future as a great nation. Her mental attitude is similar, that of a great awakening, a consciousness of new strength, an exuberance of energy biting hard on the bit to run the race, mellowed memory of hard-won battles against tremendous odds in the past. For the future, a golden vision opening on vistas too far to follow. They dreamed pretty big in the days of Queen Elizabeth, but they didn't dream big enough for what was to come. And they are dreaming pretty big up in Canada today, but it's hard to forecast the future when a nation the size of all Europe is setting out on the career of her world history. To put it differently, Canada's position is very much the same today as the United States a century ago. Her population is about 7 million. The population of the United States was 7 million in 1810. One was a strip of isolated settlements north and south along the Atlantic seaboard. The other, a string of provinces east and west along the waterways that ramify from the St. Lawrence. Both possessed and were flanked by vast unexplored territory the size of Russia. The United States by Louisiana, Canada by the Great Northwest. What the Civil War did for the United States, Confederation did for the Canadian provinces, welded them into a nation. The parallel need not be carried farther. If the same development follows Confederation in Canada as follows the Civil War in the United States, the 20th century will witness the birth and growth of a world power. To no one has the future opening before Canada come as a greater surprise than to Canadians themselves. A few years ago such a claim as the Premier's would have been regarded as the effusions of the after-dinner speaker. While Canadian politicians were hoping for the honour of being accorded colonial place in the English Parliament, they suddenly awakened to find themselves a nation. They suddenly realised that history, and big history, too, was in the making. Instead of Canada being dependent on the Empire, the Empire's most far-seeing statesmen were looking to Canada for the strength of the British Empire. No longer is there a desire among Canadians for place in the Parliament at Westminster. With a new empire of their own to develop, equal in size to the whole of Europe, Canadian public men realise they have enough to do without taking a hand in European affairs. As the different Canadian provinces came into confederation, they were like beads on a string a thousand miles apart. First were the maritime provinces, with western bounds touching the eastern bounds of Quebec, but in reality, with the settlements of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island separated from the settlements of Quebec by a thousand miles of untracked forest. Only the Ottawa River separated Quebec from Ontario, but one province was French, the other English. 
aliens to each other in religion, language, and customs. A thousand miles of rock-bound, winter-bound wastes lay between Ontario and the scattered settlements of the Red River in Manitoba. Not an interest was in common between the little province of the Middle West and her sisters to the east. Then prairie land came for a thousand miles, and mountains for six hundred miles, before reaching the Pacific province of British Columbia, more completely cut off from other parts of Canada than from Mexico or Panama. In fact, it would have been easier for British Columbia to trade with Mexico and Panama than with the rest of Canada. To bind these far separated patches of settlement, oases in the desert of wilds, into a nation was the object of the union known as the Confederation. But a nation can live only as it trades what it draws from the soil. Naturally, the isolated provinces looked for trade to the United States, just across an invisible boundary. It seemed absurd that the Canadian provinces should try to trade with each other, a thousand miles apart, rather than with the United States, a stone's throw from the door of each province. But the United States erected a tariff wall that Canada could not climb. The struggling dominion was thrown solely on herself, and set about the giant task of linking the provinces together, building railroads from Atlantic to Pacific, canals from tidewater to the Great Lakes, in actual cash, this cost Canada $400 million, not counting land grants and private subscriptions for stock, which would bring up the cost of binding the provinces together to a billion. This was a staggering burden for a country with a smaller population than Greater New York, a burden as big as Japan and Russia assumed for their war, but, like war, the expenditure was a fight for national existence. Without the railroads and canals, the provinces could not have been bound together into a nation. These were Canada's pioneer days, when she was spending more than she was earning, when she bound herself down to grinding poverty and big risks and hard tasks. It was a long pull and a hard pull, but it was a pull altogether. That was Canada's seed time. This is her harvest. That was her night work, when she toiled while other nations slept. Now was the awakening, when the world sees what she was doing. Railroad men... Farmer, miner, manufacturer, all had the same struggle. The big outlay of labour and money at first, the big risk and no profit, the long period of waiting. Canada was laying her foundations of yesterday for the superstructure of prosperity today and tomorrow, the new empire. When one surveys the country as a whole, the facts are so big they are bewildering. In the first place, the area of the Dominion is within a few thousand miles as large as all Europe. To be more specific, you could spread the surface of Italy and Spain and Turkey and Greece and Austria over eastern Canada, and you would still have an area uncovered and the least alone bigger than the German Empire. England spread flat on the surface of eastern Canada would just serve to cover the maritime provinces nicely, leaving uncovered Quebec which is a third bigger than Germany, Ontario, which is bigger than France, and Labrador, Ungava, which is about the size of Austria. In the west you could spread the British Isles out flat, and you would not cover Manitoba, with her new boundaries extending to Hudson Bay. It would take a country the size of France to cover the province of Saskatchewan, a country larger than Germany to cover Alberta, two countries the size of Germany to cover British Columbia and the Yukon, and there would still be left uncovered the northern half of the west, 
an area the size of European Russia. No old world monarch from William the Conqueror to Napoleon could boast of such a realm. People are fond of tracing ancestry back to feudal barons of the Middle Ages. What feudal baron of the Middle Ages, or lord of the outer marches, was heir to such heritage as Canada may claim? Think of it. Combine all the feudatory domains of the Rhine and the Danube, you have not so vast an estate as a single western province. Or gather up all the estates of England's midland counties in eastern shires and borderlands, you have not enough land for one of Canada's inland seas, Lake Superior. If there were a population in eastern Canada equal to France, and Quebec alone would support a population equal to France, and in Manitoba equal to the British Isles, and in Saskatchewan equal to France, and in Alberta equal to Germany, and in British Columbia equal to Germany, ignoring the Yukon, Mackenzie River, Kiwaran, and Labrador, taking only those parts of Canada where climate has been tested and land surveyed, Canada could support 200 million people. The figures are staggering, but they are not half so improbable as the actual facts of what has taken place in the United States. America's population was acquired against hard odds. There were no railroads when the movement to America began. The only ocean goers were sailboats of slow progress and great discomfort. In Europe was profound ignorance regarding America. Today all this changed. Canada begins where the United States left off. The whole world is gridironed with railroads. Fast Atlantic liners offer greater comfort to the immigrant than he has known at home. Ignorance of America has given place to almost romantic glamour. Just when the freelands of the United States are exhausted and the government is putting up bars to keep out the immigrant, Canada is in a position to open her doors wide. Less than a fortieth of the entire West is inhabited. Of the great clay belt of North Ontario, only a patch on the southern edge is populated. The same may be said of the great forest belt of Quebec. These facts are the magnet that will attract the immigrant to Canada. The United States wants no more immigrants. And the movement to Canada has begun. To her shores are thronging the hosts of the old world's dispossessed, in multitudes greater than any army that ever marched to conquest under Napoleon. When the history of America comes to be written in a hundred years, it will not be the record of a slaughter field with contending nations battling for the mastery, or generals wading to glory near deep in blood. It will be an account of the most wonderful race movement, the most wonderful experiment in democracy the world has known. It is not given to all emigres to become great capitalists or great leaders. Some who have the opportunity have not the ability, and the majority would not, for all the rewards that greatness offers, choose careers that entail long years of nerve-wracking, unflagging labour. But on a minor scale, the same process of making over takes place. One case will illustrate. Some years before immigration to Canada had become general, two or three hundred Icelanders were landed in Winnipeg destitute. For some reason which I have forgotten, probably the quarantine of an immigrant, the Icelanders could not be housed in the government immigration hall. They were absolutely without money, household goods, property of any sort except clothing, and that was scant. The men having but one suit of the poorest clothes, the women thin homespun dresses so worn one can see many of them had no underwear. The people represented the very dregs of poverty. Withdrawing to the vacant lots in the west end of Winnipeg, at that time a mere town, the newcomers slept for the first nights, 
heard it in the rooms of an Icelander opulent enough to have rented a house. Those who could not gain admittance to this house slept under the high-board sidewalks, then a feature of the new town. I remember as a child watching them sit on the high sidewalk till it was dark, then roll under. Fortunately, it was summer, but it was useless for people in this condition to go bare to the prairie farm. To make land yield, you must have house and barns and stock and implements, and I doubt if these people had as much as a jackknife. I remember how two or three of the older women used to sit crying each night in despair till they disappeared in the crowded house, fourteen or twenty of them to a room. Within a week, the men were all at work, sawing wood from door to door at a dollar and a half a cord. The women out by the day, washing at a dollar a day. Within a month, they had earned enough to buy lumber and tar paper. Tar papered shanties went up like mushrooms in the vacant lots. Before winter, each family had bought a cow and chickens. I shall not betray confidence by telling where the cow and chickens slept. Those immigrants were not desirable neighbours. Other people moved hastily away from the region. Such a condition would not be tolerated now, when there are spacious immigration halls and sanitary inspectors to see that cows and people do not house under the same roof. What with work in peddling milk, by spring the people were able to move out on the free prairie farms. Today, those Icelanders own farms clear of debt, own stock that would be considered the possession of a capitalist in Iceland, and have money in the savings banks. Their sons and daughters have had university educations, and have entered every avenue of life. Farming, trading, practicing medicine, actually teaching English in English schools. Some are members of parliament. It was a hard beginning, but it was a rebirth to a new life. They are now among the nation-builders of the West. But it would be a mistake to conclude that Canada's nation-builders consisted entirely of poor people. The race movement has not been a leaderless mob. Princes, nobles, adventurers, soldiers of fortunes were the pathfinders who blazed the trail to Canada. Glory, pure and simple, was the aim that lured the first comers across the trackless seas. Adventurous young aristocrats, members of the old order, led the First Nation builders to America, and, all unconscious of destiny, laid the foundations of the new order. The story of their adventures and work is the history of Canada. It is a new experience in the world's history. This race movement that has built up the United States is now building up Canada. Other great race movements have been a tearing down of high places upward scramble of one class on the backs of the deposed class. Instead of levelling down, Canada's nation building is levelling up. This, then, is the empire, the size of all the nations in Europe, bigger than Napoleon's wildest dreams of conquest, to which Canada has awakened. End of section 54. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Stevens.